Well, the message today, the title of the message today is this. What does it mean to be a real woman of God? Brought to you by not a woman. (laughs) Who does he think he is telling me how to be a woman? He ain't a woman. He doesn't know what it's like to be me. Well, uh, I'm going to go there because the Word of God goes there. Last week, the men, you know, got it. I mean, I had to talk about biblical masculinity, what it means to be a real man of God. And you know what? It was just a preview because all of chapter 3 is coming at you, men. All right? But here, this morning, the Bible turns toward the women and asks the question, what does it mean to be a real woman of faith, a real woman of God? Hey, listen, women. You listening? The world will tell you what it means to be a woman and the world will get it wrong. If you listen to the world and follow their definition, try and measure up to their standard, you will fail to become the woman God intended you to be. But why? Because it's a broken standard, it's a faulty standard, it's a fake standard. Uh, Listen, I've got even, let's even talk about just physical beauty. You are shown images that are so fake and photoshopped and not real, you could never live up to them. Check out these pictures. These are women before and after they got all done up for their photo shoot. You know, same woman, same woman. And uh, we've got women who, you know, in their ordinary skin, without the makeup, without the hair done, look one way. But look out, as soon as the camera's on, they become a whole different person. And then even after the shoot, they go back and they change things and they fix things. And they, How on earth can you be expected to compete with that when you look in the mirror? How, what standard are they giving you just for physical beauty? It's a fake standard. That's Colby Calais right there. She wrote a whole song about how it's so pointless to try and be somebody you're not and to try and live up to a fake standard of beauty. Hey, it's true with physical beauty. It's true with other elements of being a woman. You'll be told by the world... If you really want to be a real woman, uh, you have to be attractive like Julia Roberts or funny like Ellen. Or maybe you have to be athletic like the Williams sisters or smart like Condi Rice. Or you have to be powerful uh, like Hillary Clinton. Or, or maybe you have to be talented like Celine Dion or, or, or maternal like Michelle Duggar. And, and if you can put a few of those qualities together, then you are a real woman, head and shoulders above the rest of women. If you try and live up to the world's standards of womanhood, you'll fail to become a woman of God. It's an artificial, broken, selfish standard. It's out of line with what God has for you. The real question is this. Are you measuring up to God's standards for your life? The real question is this. Are you becoming a woman God wants you to become? What are women supposed to be devoted to in the church? How do you know you've become a true woman of faith? Let's talk about that today, but let's pray first. Father in heaven, there is such a fight, such a battle, such a war for the identity of women in this culture. Millions of dollars in marketing is trying to convince women they need this product or this trip or this experience or this type of person in their life to truly find fulfillment, and they're being lied to. Show us in your word how to pursue the true definition of being a woman of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Come on, guys, get your Bibles open. This is for you too. Come on. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, last week, the Apostle Paul began talking to the men, and I just like stopped the sermon mid-sentence. And, and now it's, he's like continuing his thought, and he's talking to women. This is directed to the church in Ephesus. 
The primary reason for this instruction is to tell the church how to do church. So, so much of what you're hearing today is instructing these original women in Ephesus how to do church. But these principles apply outside of church as well. Uh, it says in chapter 2, verse 9, Likewise, I desire also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Here's the first thing you can write down. Women, display godly devotion. Women, display godly devotion. Do you see the word godliness there in verse 10? Do you see that? Godliness comes up in this book a bunch of times. It's a, it's a really important concept. What does it mean to be godly? Well, it's a quality of your heart. You remember David was called a man after what? A man after God's own heart. Do you know what God loved most about David? When God looked into David's heart, God saw David looking into God's heart. When God searched David's heart, he found David was searching God's heart. That's what it means to be godly. Listen, do you know where where your pursuit of of being a true woman of God starts? It starts when you search God's heart and you desire to become the woman he wants you to be. It starts with godliness. Now that's invisible though. Searching God's heart and truly desiring at the core of your being to please and honor him, you can't really see that. So how does it show? Well, there are many ways. There are hundreds of ways that your godliness will show up in your life. And the Bible focuses on a couple right here. And one way you can display godly devotion is by the clothing you choose to wear, by the way that you get ready for church, and by how you appear physically in church. You're saying a lot about your godly devotion to the Lord. There was a problem in Ephesus, and apparently the problem was some women were not dressing respectfully, modestly, or they were not showing self-control in the amount of luxury they were displaying in the church. Okay? So while the Apostle Paul is going after the external, he grounds it in a desire for an internal trait, which is called godliness. Maybe you grew up in a church where they were all about the external and you were told what you can wear and what you can't wear and how to do your hair. You were told you can't wear pants, got to wear dresses. And men, you were told how long your hair could be. Listen, that is the farthest thing from what the Bible's calling for. The Bible is calling for an internal uh, trait called godliness that shows up on the outside. And churches that try and control the external are starting backwards. They think, well, if we could just get you to follow our rules of dress and then, then you'll eventually have a godly heart. That's backwards and it's false and it doesn't work. It teaches fear of man, not fear of God. And it doesn't produce godliness. So don't expect me to hand out a list of what you should be wearing from now on. <laughs> you know, we're not going to police your fashion, all right? But the Bible says one way you can display godly devotion is by how you choose to appear, especially in church. Well, what are some guidelines here? Look back at verse 8 or verse 9. It says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Respectable means not disgraceful, not vulgar, rather decent and acceptable. Meaning you're not wearing anything that draws needless attention to yourself it's, it's fitting, it's suited to the occasion, it's respectable. Women spend a lot of time wondering what to wear. They'll often ask for advice from their husbands. There's even shows called What Not to Wear because they don't want to end up a fashion don't. 
right? You don't want to end up a fashion nightmare. Here's some pictures of fashion uh, nightmares, fashion gone wrong. There you go. Wear that to your next Christmas party. Looks like she is an ornament. Huh? How about this next one? This is like what not to wear for sure. Where did that come from? It's like, uh, yeah, okay, how about the next one? Uh, this is, this is uh, a prom couple. I have a feeling he didn't pick that out. I think she just wanted to look cute, and we'll dress together and coordinate, and yikes! Women are always wondering what to wear, what not to wear. It says here that women should wear respectable apparel. What does that mean? Well, a few more helpful words. It says respectable, but it also says in verse 9, with modesty and self-control. Modesty means not sexually enticing to men. Some of the women were dressing hoochie in Ephesus. It showed up in the garment they picked, how loose or tight it was, how short, how, we don't know, but that their choice of attire would be not modest. Not modest. It would be immodest. In addition, there was something about the way they were doing their hair. The Bible goes on to say, um, in verse 8, verse 9, it says, uh, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair. What does that mean? Does that mean if I braid my hair, that's a sinful haircut? Am I supposed to only go with the ponytail? No, there was something about, there was something about the way they were showing up with the outfit they chose and the way their hair was done. They were putting out the sexual vibe to other men. Now, this may have been married women who were trying to get sexual attention from other men. This may have been single women who were putting out sexual attention, wanting to get sexual attention through what they were wearing. Whatever it was, it was not modest. And it wasn't appropriate, especially for church. Now, again, we're not going to give you like four rules for how to do your hair, or what hairstyles you can and can't wear to church. I know women are also concerned, you know, you don't want to have a bad hair day, right? You don't, want to, you don't want to wear something that's off. You don't want to have a bad fashion day or a bad hair day. Here's a few gals who've had bad hair days. You don't want to end up like these people. Whoa, what is that? And here's the next one. This is she's going with an you know, interesting cut, kind of bald on the top, and then you know, shaggy on the back. So, or, or here's another one. This is just like you don't want to end up with kind of a piece of art up on top. Which This is the way women were coming to church in Ephesus. The sculptures and the literature at the time I mean, it talked about these huge elaborate hairstyles where they actually had they woven like golden diamonds into their hair. So they're like sparkling coming to church. Here's the last one. You definitely don't want to go with that too. Like big old bow tie on top, right? Yeah. Don't want that to be you. So the Bible calls us, the Bible calls you to be respectable in what you wear, modest in how you dress and how you, Why? Because you're not supposed to be displaying a promiscuous heart. You're supposed to be displaying a godly heart. Women, display godly devotion. Don't display a promiscuous heart by what you're wearing. Um, It also says self-control, and modesty and self-control. What does that mean? Well, apparently some of the richer women were trying to display their luxury. They were showing up with gold and pearls and they were decking themselves out with all the jewelry they had. It was even up in their hair. They were wearing their most expensive outfit. The problem is there was such a huge cultural gap between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor in this church that there were some women who were literally slaves, the property of other humans coming to church. They owned nothing. They had nothing. Maybe they owned one outfit and it was, you know, and, and that woman was sitting next to Little Miss Showoff, 
And, and the one woman is looking at the other woman like, hey, I uh, like your gold-plated purse and your diamond haircut. And she has nothing. Nothing. And here this other woman is being so incredibly insensitive that she would not just like dress nice, but flaunt her wealth when she knows very well there are other women who literally have nothing sitting right next to her. Okay, she's not being self-controlled. She wants to flaunt her wealth. She wants to draw attention to her luxury and her standard of living when she's not being loving toward fellow women. So the problem is, women weren't displaying godly devotion. They were displaying their bodies and they were displaying their, their stuff. Their, and uh, it was drawing needless sexual attention to them from the men and it was drawing envy from the other women. It was creating problems. So women... Display godly devotion. How? By dressing modestly and by being self-controlled in just how much of your stuff you decide to show off. Why? Because godliness is, is the beginning of becoming a woman of God. And the enduring principle here is not what to wear or how to dress or what to do with your hair. It's that you should find a way in our culture to express modesty and self-control that comes from a godly heart. Okay? What kind of attention should you be drawing to yourself? As a Christian woman, what do you want other people to notice about you? How do you want other people to define you? Do you want other women and men to notice your wealth? Do you want them to define you by your stuff? Do you want other men to see your figure and body parts? Do you want them to think sexually about you? You have to ask yourself what you want to draw attention to. And the answer found in Scripture is this. You should actually not be drawing attention to your own greatness and beauty and glory and luxury. Far from that, you should be most conscious of God's image at church. You should be most focused on His beauty, on His luxurious grace. You should be so infatuated with Him that other people shouldn't really even be noticing you. In fact, when they look at you, they should see you looking up at God. Godliness is expressed in what you wear. It's expressed in what you bring with you to church. And listen, you should be most concerned about His image, His beauty. You should want other people to be conscious of His image, His glory, His beauty as well. That's where modesty and self-control will come in. As far as your relationship to other men, listen, if you're married, women... You should just not be competing for attention from other men. You should not be trying, and certainly not sexual attention. It's just not appropriate or holy or godly for you to be craving the lustful eyes of other men who aren't your husband. It's not edifying for you or for them, and certainly it reflects that you don't want God's eye to be favoring you. You would rather have the eyes of men upon you, even though you know it's sinful. So I just have to issue a strong word against that. But what if you're single? What are you saying, Pastor Ryan? If I'm single and I'm a girl and there's lots of other girls out there that I'm just supposed to go out wearing sweatpants with no makeup on, you know, drawing attention to my faith, is that how I'm supposed to go about? Looking like some sort of a hermit or something, you know, waiting for him to notice me through my undone hair? No, I'm not saying that. Okay, it's fine to look nice, modestly. It's fine to wear makeup. It's fine to want to take care of yourself. Um, But listen, you should primarily be drawing attention to Christ's greatness and his beauty. You should be primarily displaying your love for your Savior. And if you do that, if you do that, you'll find a man who's attracted to your faith 
more than your figure. You'll find a man who's drawn to you because of your spiritual love for Christ. And listen, guys, the most attractive thing you're ever going to find in a woman is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will keep you together when you are not lovable. The Spirit will keep you in love with her when she perhaps is not looking lovely. It's the Holy Spirit of God and the love of God that will give you a bond that's unbreakable. Listen, you find that man and he'll be with you until the day you die. When you're old and gray and your teeth are falling out, he'll be right there with you because he's with you for the right reason. Women display godly devotion. Here's the next point. Write this down. Women work for Christ. Women work for Christ. What does it mean to be a godly woman? Well, work for Christ. It says here in verse 10, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? What do you want to be known for? What do you want to be defined by? What, well, you should, other people in your life should look and see you serving your king. They should know that you don't just serve your family, you don't just serve your husband, you don't just go to work and serve your boss. You, in addition to all of that effort, you work for Christ. You find the time and you make the priority knowing that Christ has called you into his service and you have the high honor of being um, one, of his, uh, one of his key partners in making the kingdom go forward. Uh, we challenge everyone here at Harvest to work for Christ in some way, big or small. And you know, I just love how many women we have who are really stepping up and sacrificing big time for the church and for the Lord. Um, I, I can list so many, but I think of Peggy Connor who leads up our welcome ministry and Lorelai Herzog who's in charge of our greeters. Uh, Carol Hall, who's in charge of hospitality, or Lori Erickson's in charge of children's check-in. Nancy Lindstedt is always serving like crazy. We have so many women who are making a tremendous sacrifice for Christ. Uh, in addition, we've got women who've served on our leader teams, like our facility search team. We have a whole women's ministry leader team that reaches out and disciples other women. These are girls, these are women who are not just bearing their own burdens, but they are helping other women in their walk with Christ. And that's amazing to see that. They can make the excuses. They can stay home. They can value their own time. They can just get all of their their household in order and be content with that. But instead, they're doing more. They're working for Christ. And I just want to challenge you, if you're a woman who's newer to this church, hey, listen, we find a spot for everyone to serve Christ. We think it's normal and natural when you find out that God would so love you that he would give his son for you, who would die, who would be buried, who would rise again, so that when you put your faith in him, God's Spirit would come and dwell in you. When you realize that you are a temple of God, that you are so loved by Him that He would be willing to dwell within you, and when you realize His Spirit gifts you with special, unique ways so that you can make an eternal difference in the lives of other men and women, that prompts you to get active. That prompts you to serve other people in love and to work for Christ. You want to be a real woman of God? Well, hey, display godly devotion. Let it start in your heart and then let it flow through all of your decisions, even your appearance. Hey, work for Christ. Find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what he's called you to do. Here's the third one. Write this down. Women, learn God's word with respect and humility. Learn God's word with respect and humility. It goes on to say this, if you look at uh, verse 11. It says in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let's take this a word at a time. First, it says, let a woman learn. Uh, write this down, women. Learn the word so you aren't deceived. Learn the word so you aren't deceived. Perhaps some of the cultural background we find in this book will be helpful 
to know why the Apostle Paul has to say, women, learn. Women, learn the word. Um, There were false teachers in Ephesus who were teaching women lies. Um, There were teachers, perhaps even in the church, small group leaders, you know, guys who would who would kind of make the rounds outside of Sunday morning, who were saying things that conflicted with what the women were hearing from the church pastors and leaders, false teachers. For some reason, we know these men were targeting the women. It says in 2 Timothy 3.6 that we'll put up on the screen of these false teachers, it says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. We don't know why, but they were just trying to exercise their influence with women first. And some of the women were being deceived. We found out in the first week that there were a few different brands of this false teaching. There were some who were sharing Jewish myths, old wives' tales, uh, fake stories, meaning they were calling into question the Old Testament they had on hand, saying, no, don't listen to that. You can't trust that. I've got the real story. Okay, so their Bible was being attacked. But there were other people who were getting caught up in endless genealogies and conspiracy theories, okay? And, and it's probably they're doing that to question the legitimacy of Christ as the only Messiah. They're probably saying, oh yeah, Jesus was all right, but let me show you what this genealogy digs up because there's other people who are even cooler. We don't know for sure, but it seems like the women were being deceived. They're being deceived. Their Bible was being attacked. Their church leaders were being discredited. They didn't know what to think about the truth of Christ. Okay, we also find out uh, in 1 Timothy 6, 5 that it says these false teachers saw godliness as a means to financial gain. So they weren't just teaching them false things. They were also saying, listen, you want to be a true woman of God? Forget about the Old Testament. You know, if you follow what I'm saying, you're going to be rich. It's almost like a name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. And you want to know how you show people that you're truly spiritual? You show them you're rich. Because the more money you have, the more God blessed you. These are the lies these women were being taught. No wonder the women were showing up in their finest outfits, decked out with all their gold and silver. They thought that's what showed God loved them. And it's the false teachers who were teaching them that if you're godly, God will give you money. It's a lie. It's false. We also find out these false teachers in 1 Timothy 4.3 were forbidding marriage. There was kind of an anti-pleasure group going around. And what they would say is this. Do you want to show other people that you're truly spiritual and godly and righteous? Turn away from all pleasure. Because the truly righteous people are suffering and they're willing to turn away from the the lusts of this world and to rise up in true spiritual freedom from that. Um, Meaning, you go to small group and your small group leader would tell these single women, you don't want to get married. You never want to get married. You You just want to be single and you want to avoid all those passions altogether and then you'll be a true woman of God. Huh? This is what they're being taught. They're forbidding marriage. They're saying if you really want to be a woman of faith, you should not get married. That's confusing. In addition, their culture was confusing them because we know that there was kind of a women's lib movement going on in the Roman Empire at this time. And in fact, they had to have, like the emperor, had to issue some, you know, some laws and stuff because women were rising up, throwing off traditional values, trying to gain more sexual freedom within marriage and outside of marriage, dressing more you know, more suggestively than ever before. This was happening in the culture around them, and it left the Christian women in this church totally confused. Why? Because their Bible was being attacked, their family was being attacked, their church was being attacked, 
in their heart, there was so much going on. There was a huge problem with abortion in this, in this day and age. It was frowned upon across the, you know, across the whole empire, but it was still happening. Why? Because the portrait of a true woman back then was free of a husband, free of children, no need to do that, dress your best, show everyone that you're rich, don't listen to the Old Testament. This is all the messages they were hearing, and they were so confused. And what does the Bible tell them? Women, learn God's word. Learn God's word. Because there's all these lies out there, there's all these false definitions of truth and femininity, and you know what? You've got to learn the words so you're not deceived. Hopefully that background helps you understand how these women were being torn in all these different directions. Women, learn the word so you're not deceived. All right, then it says women should learn, look back at verse 11, quietly. Learn quietly. So write this down, learn quietly so you aren't disruptive. Learn quietly so you aren't disruptive. It's hard to object with this one. It doesn't mean, obviously, that women should be silent from the moment they enter the room. Obviously, women are expected to sing just as men are. In the book of 1 Corinthians, when it lays out guidelines for the gathered church, women were found praying publicly, prophesying, which could even include a message of encouragement or even instruction to the gathered church. It's more spontaneous in that form. Um, Women were also, uh, you know, expected to participate in the gathered church. But here's the thing. When it was time to get quiet, when it was time for one person at a time to share uh, probably a previously prepared message, um, everyone was expected to be quiet except the person who's speaking. Um, And for some reason, the Apostle Paul here sees the need to remind the women to learn quietly. Okay, learn quietly. It's probably because the women were talking when they weren't supposed to be talking. Uh, It's probably, maybe they were confused. Maybe they heard one thing from the false teachers and they heard another thing from the preacher and so they're asking their husbands, well, I don't get that. Can you just, that's what was going on in Corinth. The women were talking with their husbands trying to figure stuff out when it was church time. Okay, so we're not sure exactly what was going on, but the point is when it was time for everyone to be quiet, some of the women weren't being quiet. Okay, now listen, we don't, it's not like we have this rule here, like, you know what, the women have to be quiet during the sermon, but men, you're free to chatter, you know. This is clearly an expectation for both men and women Then, when it's time to be quiet, you're supposed to learn quietly. Maybe if you were at this RZIM event that we had last week where we brought in speakers, one of them from the UK, to share about uh, defending your faith. At the end of this whole presentation, some random guy stood up and just started shouting from the audience. He's like, I got a question from... And it was time to be quiet. All right, now I was moderating, so I was like, sir, you need to sit down and be quiet. And he's like, well, I want to know. I'm like, sit down and be quiet. It's not time to talk. He's like, okay. So he sat down and he was quiet because it was time to be quiet. Okay. I didn't say, well, he's a male, so he can just talk and blur as much as he wants. No. All right. Men and women are both expected to learn quietly. There was probably more of a problem with the women in Ephesus than the men. So this is a reminder when it's time for God's word to be taught, even if you're confused, let's not interrupt. Let's not question. Let's actually just let the word be taught. Um, So women, learn God's word quietly. And then here's the next one. It says women should learn uh, quietly, verse 11, with all submissiveness. So write this down. Let qualified men teach so you aren't defiant. So we don't want you to be deceived or disruptive or defiant. Let qualified men teach so you aren't defiant. Where does this come from? Well, the word submissiveness. I'm supposed to learn God's word supposed to learn it quietly, and I'm supposed to have a heart that 
Uh, the, the word actually for submission means to put under in rank. It's a military term, to rank yourself under. And it says to be submissive to the word you're hearing, to rank yourself under in authority the truth that you're hearing. Okay? I'm learning God's word, I'm doing it quietly, and I'm submitting my heart to what I'm hearing. That's the portrait for how women are to learn the church. Frankly, that's how men are supposed to learn too. It's not like the men are free to be like, I agree with half of that. No, we're men, we're supposed to submit ourselves to 100% of what God's word has to say too. All right? So yet again, this is an expectation shared by men and women, but it's being emphasized for women probably because they were having local challenges that we don't exactly know about. Let qualified men teach you so you aren't defiant. It goes on to say this. It says, learn, learn quietly, learn with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. What does that mean? Well, let's take the first half. It says, I don't permit a woman to teach. Um, What exactly does that mean? It means that in the gathered church setting, um, that the Bible called upon the elder qualified men, the official spokespeople for the church, to share the, you know, the formal teaching with the church. Um, what does it mean that Paul would say, I don't permit a woman to teach? Does that mean they're not allowed to teach anywhere anything? Well, that's not biblical. In fact, in Titus 2, women are commanded to teach what is good. Women are commanded to teach what is good. So when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach, he's not saying women are never allowed to teach anywhere anything. Um, However, Titus 2 kind of describes women as being primarily involved in instructing other women, influencing other women. There's also calls in the New Testament for women to teach children. There's also some times in the New Testament where a woman does, in an exceptional case, kind of set a man straight on some things that he's not correct on. Okay, so this isn't forbidding women from teaching everywhere, everything in the church. It seems to be narrowly focused for when it's sermon time, when it's the message for the whole gathered church, men and women, the Bible calls upon an elder qualified man to present that instruction to the church. Um, This is where we get our conviction as a church that the formal instruction of the gathered assembly should be given by an elder qualified man. Um, we would say that the Bible teaches that an elder qualified man should be the one giving the formal instruction when the church is gathered. Okay? And we would say that if a church uh, has a woman who's the primary person who's in charge of instructing the congregation, that that really can't square with, with this description of what should happen in church here. Because the Bible calls upon an elder qualified man um, to actually teach the gathered assembly. Now, that leads to the next phrase, which is, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What does that mean? Well, write this down. Number four, uh, women, allow men to lead in your church and your home. Allow men to lead in your church and your home. When it says exercise authority over, um, it basically just means to be in a position of authority over. Meaning, in the home and in the church, God's design is that the husband would be the spiritual leader in the family, leading his wife and his children toward Christ-likeness and spiritual progress. In the church, God calls upon the men, particularly the elders, to take the primary lead in instructing and directing the church. Um, does that extend outside of the church and the home? No. There really isn't any expectation in the Bible that only men would lead in the business world or that only men would lead in government. 
okay? In fact, what we find is we simply find in the home and in the church, God calls upon the men to provide that leadership. Um, We're not going to talk about the home a lot today because that comes into view in the weeks ahead. We will get there. What does it mean to be the spiritual leader of your home? What happens if my husband's not a believer? What happens if he's not leading well? We're going to get to all of that, but not today. But here's the basic truth. Men, men, you are the senior pastor of your house. It's your job to shepherd your wife and children. God's looking to you to take the initiative. He doesn't want you to drop back 10 yards and pump the ball to your wife and let her lead all of that. He wants you to help her and lead her and guide her and protect her and defend her. He wants you to be the leader in your home. And wives, he wants you to follow your husband's lead. In the church, a similar principle applies. God looks to the godliest men in the church to provide the primary leadership and instruction. This is all bound up in the office of the elder. Pastor, elder, overseer is all one thing. Three words for one thing. It's kind of an official spokesman in the church, and God looks to the men to fill that office. Based on that, our conviction as a church is that the senior preaching pastors and the elders should be men. God calls upon the men to serve in this role. And if a church has female elders or female preachers or those who are primarily in charge with the authority or the teaching, that doesn't square with what God's Word says. Okay, the, that position is called complementarian. Um, It means that women, we believe, and men have equal value but different responsibilities in the home and in the church. That's our conviction as a church. Now, this goes against so many cultural sensibilities. Many people have questioned it. Um, How have they questioned it? Well, some people have flat out said, you know what? That was then. This is now. Times have changed. and, And so this is just not applicable anymore. All right. But the problem is Paul doesn't ground his reasoning in culture. He doesn't say everyone knows this is the way the Roman Empire is laid out. In fact, he goes on to mention creation. He grounds his argument in creation, not in culture. Um, So it's a timeless truth. It's not bound culturally to Ephesus in that era. It's actually a timeless truth that transcends his day and reaches to our day. Some people say, well, The women back then were different. They weren't as educated. Society was different. Today, women have all of this freedom and the the, uh, ability and capacity to lead in every other area. Why would we refrain from giving them that leadership in the church? Okay, so they're saying women were different back then because women are more educated today uh, and, and they have more rights. They should be allowed to lead. But again, the argument is not found in culture or even in a woman's ability to be educated or to have capacity. It's ground in creation. It's grounded in God's original plan for men and women. Some people flat out reject Paul. They say he was a bigot. He was a member of a, of a um, you know, patriarchal society. And of course, he had all these gender biases that are now gone. You can't trust what he says. And some people will flat out just take Paul's work and throw it to the side and say, you can't listen to him. He was biased. That's unfortunate because he's an apostle speaking with the authority of God. And to throw those books of the Bible or to throw that man out as an authority in your life is very sinful and wrong. Okay, so how do we know that this still applies today and how does it apply today? Well, it says here, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, why? Why should this be the case? Why should we let men lead in the home and the church? Well, Adam was formed first and then Eve. 
In other words, male headship was built into God's created order. It didn't come along later. It wasn't the invention of some culture. It was God's original design. When there was the first husband and the first wife, God intended for him to be the head of that household. That's why Adam was formed first. In, in forming Adam first and then forming Eve from Adam and then bringing her to Adam and even letting Adam name her, he was showing that he wanted the husband to have the leadership in that relationship. Therefore, it's built in, it's original, it didn't come later, and it transcends all culture and time. She was made to help him. He was made to lead and protect her. Together, they were made to fulfill God's purposes for humanity. Together, they enjoyed God's presence. Together, they explored a new earth that was in mint condition. They were one flesh. Together, they were bound up in love for each other. Together, they reflected God's love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Listen, both of them were made in God's image, but one of them was charged to lead. This is still true in the home. This is still true in the church. He's looking back to Genesis because, remember, one of the things the false teachers were doing is they were discrediting their Old Testament. They were saying, I've got all these new Jewish myths and conspiracy theories for you to follow. Don't listen to what you've heard. Paul has to elevate their Old Testament and say, you know what? What you read in Genesis really happened. Adam was really made at a point in time. Eve was really made second. They were really made to complement each other. All of that is true. He's restoring that view of the original man and woman. That has to happen in our day and age too. He goes on to remind them of the fall. Adam was formed first, and then Eve, verse 13. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Verse 14. What does that mean? Uh, Careful here. Adam and Eve were actually both blamed in the New Testament the same number of times for what happened in the garden. Both of them. All right? Adam, 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 Eve, 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 both guilty of what happened in the garden. So this doesn't mean... Yeah, she ate the apple and gave some to him, and it's her fault that the whole world fell into sin. That's not what the Bible's teaching. This doesn't mean that women are somehow more spiritually gullible. Well, you know, they'll buy it, you know, and uh, so she's got to be more careful because she's the one who is tricked, not the man. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that women are more spiritually gullible. The Bible does not teach that women are more to blame for what happened in the garden. Well, then why is this coming up? Because people were questioning the authority of what they had heard. And he's saying, listen, Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's true. All right? And he was meant to lead. They were meant to complement each other. Eve did sin. She did plunge the world into sin. All right? That really happened. That's really a part of the history of your gender. And some people are questioning that. You need to know it's true. Why is he bringing that up? Because history is now repeating itself in Ephesus. Just as the snake came up and questioned what they had heard and the woman was enticed to sin and then she kind of brought that to her husband and overruled his leadership, then both of them broke away from fellowship with God. Guess what? That's exactly what's happening in Ephesus. The women were being seduced by false teaching. Some of them were buying it. They were bringing it to other men and they were both about to be broken away from God and the Bible's trying to stop that from happening. Hey, History's repeating itself, women. Do you remember what happened in the garden? You're hearing things that are not true. Some of you are believing them. You're rising up against your official teachers and the word that they're sharing. You're about to break away from the truth that you've been given. History's repeating itself. That's what he's trying to establish here. 
says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's true. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what if he left it right there? That would actually be problematic because that would give the men every excuse to be like, yeah, you broke the world. Women are the res- their source of all evil. They became transgressors. So I think what he does here, and this is a really, really hard verse to interpret. I think he's still in the garden. And he says, became a transgressor. And then I think in verse 15, he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. What does that mean? I think the best interpretation, because he's still talking about a singular woman, she. I think what he's saying is, Adam was formed first, then Eve. He was supposed to lead. Eve plunged the race into sin and became a transgressor, but she will be saved through childbearing. If you remember in the garden what God said, God told Eve what? I will put enmity, strife, between your offspring, babies, and his offspring, meaning Satan's followers. God told Eve that the war is not lost. There's going to be this battle between your offspring. There's going to be good. And you remember what he said? He will strike your heel, you will crush his head. Meaning God in his wisdom redeemed Eve and said, you blew it. But there's going to be an ongoing fight between good and evil. And you know what? There's going to be a culmination of that fight. And one of your children is going to crush the head of the serpent who deceived you. Do you know who that was? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul is taking us back into that garden. He's reminding us the beginning of womanhood. He's saying, you were made to have this man who is going to care for you and protect you. He failed you. You dragged the race into sin. But you know what? There's a promise. There's a promise that through the bearing of children, there would come a Messiah. Therefore, he redeems the women. He says, yeah, you and Adam, you plunged the world into sin. But remember that promise? The promise was there would come one of your offspring who would lead you to liberation. That person is Jesus Christ. You'll be saved through childbearing. In pointing to the incarnation of Christ, not only does Paul validate the Old Testament with its promise, he also reminds these women of their Christian faith, that at the core was a man who was born of a virgin, raised up, became the Savior, died, and rose again. They were being lied to. Women were being encouraged to set aside marriage and childbirth, and the Old Testament, and Christ, and they were told if they did so, they'd have more of God's blessing on their life. And they could chase after riches. And here, Paul reminds them of the fall, and the creation, and the promise, and the birth of Christ, and he says, listen women, your liberation is found in the birth of Christ. In doing so, he elevates the whole design of traditional femininity of biblical womanhood, love, marriage, children, family, faith, all of it is of a godly purpose. The birth of the child is found at the core of our faith and at the beginning of time, and now you're being challenged to throw all of that away and follow these men who are deceiving you. This is a really confusing verse, but I feel like that is the best interpretation. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived, became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through the childbearing Then it goes plural again. Singular, then it goes plural. If they, so now he kind of has in view all women. If they continue in what? In faith, in love, in holiness, 
with self-control. Hey, what does it mean to be a true woman of God? How can I take hold of the life God has for me? How can I stop getting exhausted by trying to please everyone else and measure up to a fake, broken standard of femininity? How can I find fulfillment as a woman? Listen, it says, continue in faith, meaning you're rightly related to God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, who was born in the flesh, died on the cross, rose again, and offers you eternal life. Faith in him is the beginning of your pursuit of being a true woman of God. It says continue in faith and also in love, meaning you're rightly related to your fellow man by not enticing them with the way you look. You're also rightly related to fellow women by not flaunting everything you have to them. Love, faith, love for others. Holiness, which means you're set apart as God's servant. You're willing to work for him. You're saved by him. You're washed by him. You're setting yourself apart from the lusts of this world and the way they have you on. You're holy. And then self-control. You're avoiding sexual sin, loving money, chasing the pleasures of this life, and living just for you. Continue in faith, in love, in holiness, in self-control. This is God's plan for you as a woman. And I need to close by asking you this. Have you ever come to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you understand at the heart of the Christian faith, at the beginning of time, is this promise that there would be a child born who would redeem us from the curse, save us from the sin we've fallen into? Do you understand that that's at the heart of the history of all of women? Do you understand that that's the hope of all men is the birth of the Messiah, Christ the King, and that he needs to become your Savior and Messiah? That's faith. That's true biblical faith. Just as we went through it a few weeks ago, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is your hope. Your quest to become a woman of faith, a woman of God, starts when you worship Christ. It's only in Christ that you can find redemption from all of the sin that is bound up in your heart, from all the sinful things that other people have done to you. It's only in Christ the Messiah, the birth of the child. It's only through faith in Him that you can truly become the woman God intended you to be. Do you have faith in Christ? Do you have faith that he died on the cross, he rose again, that only he can give you eternal life forever? That it's only through faith in him that God would make you his home, stay in your heart, never leave you, never forsake you? Do you know that it's in Christ alone that you find that hope? That's where your quest as a woman begins. If you keep chasing after the standard the world has for you, you'll be exhausted and worn out. You'll never find the life of God. If you try and measure up to what the world is telling you, you will always fall short. It's only in Christ that you can attain to the true life of God. Hey, I want to give you a chance to really put your faith in Christ for the first time today. I want you to start your quest to become the woman God wants you to be through faith in Christ this morning. And I want to give you freedom from all of the other hectic, fruitless, pointless, exhausting pursuits that you have found yourself on. Let's bow together and let's pray right now. Father, it's so confusing in this world today to try and be a woman looked up to, respected, treated right. 
Even on the outside, holding it all together on the outside, it's hard, let alone keeping it all together on the inside. And I know there are so many women here today who are exhausted, who are loaded down with guilt, who are filled up with anger, resentment. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They just know things aren't right. They haven't been right. And they don't know how to solve it. And Father, I just trust that there are some women here today and you're saying to them, you need help. You need my help. Lord, you're reminding them where things went wrong, how the world was broken, and this isn't the life that you had planned for them. But you're reminding them of the promise you made that through the birth of the offspring of Eve that there would come a Messiah who would crush the head of evil. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to give women a chance this morning to put their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, to believe the gospel that they've heard and to turn away from lies and false truths that they've heard. Lord, they may want to, in their own hearts, pray along with me saying this, Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for me. Thank you for redeeming this world from the fall. Thank you for keeping your promise to deliver a Savior, born of a virgin, born to die, to save us from sin. Here and now, I put my faith in that King. Here and now, I seek to be a godly woman who walks by faith. Here and now, I'm no longer living for myself or to please others. I'm living to please you. Help me to work for you. Help me to worship you. Help me to walk with you. And help me to truly find what you want me to become as a woman of faith. Father, fill these women with your love, with your peace, with your joy, as they make it their greatest ambition to please you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.